Welcome to Writing the Past, a space where historical fiction writers share their experiences and advice on bringing the past to life. I'm your host, Megan Douglas. Hello everyone and welcome back. Today we're speaking with Susan Stokes Chapman, author of the number one Sunday Times bestseller, Pandora, published in January this year. The novel was previously shortlisted for the 2020 Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize and longlisted for the Bath Novel Award that same year. We're going to hear more about what it's about in just a moment. But in the meantime, Susan, it is so great to have you with us Thank today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I've been so excited to hear more about your journey and ask you all of my burning questions, of course. So I'm very much looking forward to this. So I thought to kick things off, I wanted to ask you what first got you into writing and what drew you to historical fiction in particular? I think it's the very boring typical answer in as much that I've always dabbled ever since I was a child. I was quite arty and I had a very rich imagination. I spent a lot of my time at school just staring out a window, daydreaming and ignoring the teacher completely. English classes, if we're ever told to write a story and it was only supposed to be two pages, I would often just go on for 10. So I've always had a bit of a yen for it I suppose but I think what actually kind of got me into writing was when I was about 13 or 14 years old and I came across an American author named Shirley Busby so she was quite prolific in the 70s and she basically wrote romance novels which my mum jokingly calls corset rippers they're juicy Lucy's let's be honest but they were always set in the Georgian era and she didn't just write a romance and put a bit of history in it she basically wrote the history and created such wonderful, evocative and richly detailed chapters and then weaved a romance so beautifully and seamlessly in between. And it was just that depth of research that completely drew me in. As for the Georgians in particular, that was because when I was 10 years old, I watched the 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice that was on the BBC. That was the one with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely. And I was just completely loved it. So it was a combination of those two things. But yeah, the Shirley Busby novels, I think, really made me think, you know what? I want to be an historical fiction writer like her. They're not like her, admittedly. These are not corset rippers that I'm writing. But I think the general <laughs> element of that rich historical detail, that is something I've carried through into my own work. So congratulations on the publication of your novel, Pandora. For anyone listening who doesn't know what it's about, it's a loose reinterpretation of the Greek myth Pandora's Box set in Georgian London. It tells the story of aspiring jewellery artist Dora Blake and her encounter with an ancient vase that her tyrannical uncle is desperately clean to keep a secret. So that's a very quick summary of the book. But Susan, could you tell us more about what first inspired you to write it? Again, I'm going to give you a very boring answer in as much that Dora and Hermes, those two characters, they just popped into my head instantly, both at the same time. So they pretty much came together fully formed. So Dora, I always knew was going to be a jewellery artist. Hermes is a magpie. He loves shiny things. I thought, what a perfect companion. He could go out and kind of try to look fine, you know, bits and pieces for her to use. So those two came very much as a pair. And then using Pandora's box, the myth for that... It's a myth that everybody knows, I think, you know, it was, it was something we're all familiar with, even if we don't fully understand the whole background around the myth. It's just something we all have heard of. And I think it's something that's been in my head for quite a while. And so when Doran and Hermes popped into my head, the Pandora's box myth, it just kind of came very quickly on their heels. And I thought, actually, this is a really kind of 
intriguing premise here. What can I do with it? How can I go about linking it all? Definitely. And what I love about Pandora is it features so much vivid, rich historical detail, and it's just blended so beautifully into the story. And I've been wondering, what advice would you give to writers who maybe want to integrate their research into the story in a way that feels natural? It is one of those tricky things, isn't it, where you're trying very hard not... If you're writing historical fiction, you don't want to sound like you're writing a history book. You need to keep the emotion, I think, going. I mean, yes, by all means, delve into that research, get as much research as you can, but you need to remember that these are real living characters that are there in this era. And so I think in order to blend the two, you need to always remember that novels, while you love that detail, they are character-driven. You are getting behind the characters themselves. You're not there just to read the historical background. So I think it's just trying to remember as you write, how would this character react in this situation? How would they interpret the world around them so I've been told for instance that Pandora is a very smelly book I hadn't intended it to be smelly but I mean in that context of I drew very much on the five senses so in TV you can always see and you can always hear but you cannot smell you cannot touch you cannot get that emotional response sometimes but as a reader of a novel you can get behind those characters and you can understand how they feel and how their senses are reacting to the world around them so I used as much of those five senses as I possibly could and I th- yeah it's just about remembering how to basically create a character that can live seamlessly in this historical world that you've created from all this wonderful research. Yeah that makes sense and I can really see that in Pandora it's so character driven and every character has their own multifaceted view of the world and they're very much living breathing entities and it was partly why I enjoyed reading it so much. I'd love to know if there's a character you relate most to and if so why? It's slightly different from what's your favourite character. My favourite character is actually Cornelius but I think the one I probably relate to most is Dora. That was quite a subconscious thing though. It was only after I'd written it and I was chatting to the marketing team at Harville who published the novel. They basically said, did you realise Dora's you, don't you? I was like, no, how do you mean by this? And, she get, and they basically you're, you're, you know, you've both been really, really determined to get where you are today. You've both had a bit of a slow start. You basically are strong, stubborn, determined. You've struggled to find recognition for your art. And yeah, I just kind of realised, oops, that is actually me. I must have been writing about myself subconscious level it's not all me obviously but I think yeah the person I relate to most has got to be Dora and I think she's the most brilliant character she's got so much spirit and tenacity in the face of some very difficult circumstances at times so I think she was probably my favorite character as well although Cornelius would be a close second for sure and Hermes in fact all of them (laughs) I'd never really knew much about magpies before I'd never really noticed them but since reading it I've really noticed magpies a lot more Could you tell us a bit more about where that inspiration came from for this character? Sure. Well, as I said earlier, magpies and shiny things seem to kind of go perfectly together. She's a jewellery designer, so he's going to love shiny things. He's going to love being able to pick little items up that she can use. But for me, I've always been quite superstitious anyway. So from a very young age, I've always acknowledged a magpie whenever I've seen a magpie and there's various different ways that you can do that but I would always 
do a salute and then say, good morning, Mr. Magpie, regards to your wife or vice versa. And then I'll go on to the other one directly after, which was one for sorrow and then two for joy and just little things like that. And I think it's always something, I think they're beautiful creatures as well, actually. If you've ever looked at the colour of a magpie and the beautiful rainbow sheen of their wings, and that's something I've tried to put into the novel as well. They're just lovely birds and they're actually very clean. They are very friendly if you were to ever get quite close to one. I think there's a bit of a stigma about them being very dirty, nasty little creatures. But no, I think they're just very beautiful birds. And I'm not going to lie, I could see the marketability of it as well, I'll be honest. But yeah, I just thought it was such a lovely thing to add in. And I'm really pleased I included him. And loads of people love him. And yeah, I wasn't expecting people to love him quite as much as they did. What I also love is the setting. I mean, you really get the sense of 18th century London. It's really gritty. It's real you're really in it. And I wondered what drew you to this time period in particular. Okay, well, it was, I already mentioned Pride and Prejudice and the Shirley Busby books and how those were already set in the 18th century. But when I was thinking of Pandora's box, I'm not a classicist. So I knew I couldn't write a straight retelling of Pandora a la Ariadne or Circe. That wasn't something I could do. But because of my love of the Georgians, I knew I had to combine the two somehow. And so it's actually really easy to link ancient Greek with the Georgians in 18th century, you know, in general, simply because they loved that era of history. So if you were to look at a lot of 18th century buildings, you'll notice some Doric columns that are flagging the entranceways. And those are taken from Greek and Roman architecture. So the Georgians basically made sure that their buildings emulated the ancient temples of old. And also in terms of the fashions, so Pandora is set in 1799 and we're not quite at Regency, but a lot of the fashions were coming in at that point. And for the women, the dresses began under the, well, the waistline began under the bust and they flowed out beautifully. And if you just have a look a lot of, the Georgian fashions, they're very similar to the Grecian togas. So they took a lot of inspiration in terms of fashion and architecture. And then, of course, there's the love of the antiquities as well. Pompeii was excavated in the seventeen in the late 1700s. The vases, the amphoras, all of that kind of thing. Those are the sort of things that William Hamilton, who is a real character, who is a real person in history, that was the sort of stuff that was being brought out and a lot of it was in the British Museum. So 18th century and ancient Greek, they actually, as a pairing, went really, really well. It was very easy to combine the two. That's really interesting because I could really see that overlap in the book and even in the designs of the jewellery that Pandora is making. So that's really interesting to understand that context for sure. Yeah. I'd love to also know, could you share a little bit about your journey towards finding an agent and then getting Pandora published? Sure. Well, as I've just said, I took a long time to get started. After reading these Shirley Busby books that I fell in love with so much, I knew that I wanted at some point to study creative writing. And I'm the first in my family to go to university. So, and because my mum had moved to Wales, I decided to go to Aberystwyth University. And that's where I studied education and English literature. And then I went on to do the MA in creative writing there. And it was during the English literature modules that I discovered romanticism, basically. And I got very, very 
involved with that. So this was romanticism in the sense of Keats and Byron and Shelley. And one of these people who walked in the romanticism circles was a man named William Hazlitt. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole kind of process of this, but essentially William Hazlitt was the subject of the first novel I wrote. And it was actually... William Hazlitt had fallen in love with his landlady's daughter and he had a bit of an inappropriate obsession with her, let's put it lightly. And in his anguish about the whole thing, he wrote a book about it called The Libra Morris, which translates to The Book of Love. And he basically wrote it as a cathartic sort of way to rid himself of this girl, Sarah Walker. But it was always his interpretation of Sarah Walker, not Sarah Walker herself. So I was very intrigued by that. And so the woman's voice for me was extremely important. And I wrote this first novel, basically recounting the affair, but from Sarah Walker's point of view. You can find out a bit more about that on my website. I have since shelved it, although I might come back to it later. But the point is, I spent a very long time on that novel. And when I say a long time, I do mean probably about 10 years, maybe not 10 years writing it, but definitely 10 years thinking about it and processing it and definitely four years writing it and drafting and redrafting. And I did have agent interest and then ultimately they backed down because at the end of the day, it's not really a marketable novel. But that novel definitely taught me how to write. Now, if you think about the fact that I had this idea initially when I was at university and I would have been... 22, 23 at the time. It wasn't until I was about 26 or 27 that I started up with writing it again properly. And I was probably about, I'd say about 34 by the time I laid it aside. I'm 36 now. And the reason why I laid it aside is because it had gone to so many different agents. And the one agent that I sent to was Juliet Mushins, who represents me now. And When she rejected it, I was devastated, obviously, but she did invite me to resubmit to her with something else. And she basically said, look, I think your writing's brilliant, but I think you could probably write something along the lines of The Miniaturist or The Doll Factory. And that was a massive compliment because those two books are two of my favourites. I think they're absolutely brilliant. But of course, I was still very upset because that's 10 years of my life down the drain, I considered at the time, that I'd spent on this novel. And... I basically wallowed a little bit, but it was probably about just a couple of weeks after I had that final rejection from Juliet, the idea of Dora and Hermes popped into my head. And I decided to sit on it for six months because I thought to myself, I can't be doing this again. I'm too stressed out from having done all of this with the novel and putting all my heart and soul into it. I need a bit of a mental break. So it wasn't until the summer that I started researching and started hesitantly writing Pandora. And then in the autumn, I decided on a whim to send the first few thousand words to the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. And to my shock, in the spring, I found out that I'd been longlisted. And at the time as well, I've probably written about 52,000 words of Pandora at that point, and I'd hit a bit of a wall in terms of writer's block. Getting that long listing really made me push forward. And on a whim, I then submitted to the Bath Novel Award. And to my shock and horror, I managed to get long listed for that as well. So the last 21,000 words of Pandora were written in three days to try and hit the deadline to submit for their shortlist. Unfortunately, I didn't make the shortlist, but I did by the end. So that was the summer now. 
have a full manuscript that was actually quite strong. And so I'd already, weirdly enough, had some interest off the back of the Lucy Cavendish and Bath novel long listing anyway. So that's something I will tell other writers as well. If you're wanting to get published traditionally, do try and submit your writing to competitions for unpublished novels because you never know if you're going to get through or not. I had submitted the first novel to plenty of competitions and got nowhere. I had submitted Pandora to a few others and got nowhere. The Lucy Cavendish was the first one that actually got attention. But because I got longlisted, agents began to come to me. So it just puts you on the map. And basically, Pandora is what I'm calling my fluke novel. It all happened in a very weird sort of way. I was used to rejection. I was used to waiting for months to hear anything. And then just everything started to happen with Pandora. But I did submit to Juliet again. And she offered me representation very, very fast. By the end of August, I had signed with her. And a month later, she got me this book deal with Harville Secker. And just everything has gone from there, really. It's been a bit of a crazy ride. Yeah, that's the most incredible journey. And what I love is you've really been in the query trenches. You've really been through all of the pain of that rejection, but then you've also had your breakthrough moment. And so I wondered if there's any advice you could give to maybe some authors who are listening, who are seeking representation currently. And what advice would you give to people who are currently querying at the moment? Well, as I said, again, you know, submit to competitions if you can. You don't have to have a finished manuscript. Sometimes it's only the first 15,000 words that you need. So even if you don't think your stuff is ready, just submit anyway, because honestly, you never know what will come of that. For those who are beginning to submit, I always say try to be as organised as you can. I actually created a spreadsheet for the whole submission process. And I've got a blog on my website outlining that if anybody's interested. But for anybody who is actually waiting for responses, all I can say is be as patient as you possibly can, simply because I know how frustrating it is. But if you spend your whole time staring at your laptop and your emails, waiting for the response to come in, you're just going to drive yourself absolutely crazy. And it's so frustrating, so deliberating. Also, you know, take any rejections that you get in your stride. Some of them are the bog standard ones. They're horrible. I was actually rejected three times by the same agency. And I don't think they realised that they'd already rejected me the first two times. So that was nice. (laughs) Oh, that's horrible. (laughs) That's savage. It was quite savage, actually, because I was like, thank you for the third time you've rejected me. I really know you don't like it. But there are some rejections that do actually have feedback. So take that feedback on board and also bear in mind any feedback that's quite similar as well, because you're very close to your novel. You sometimes can't see what the issues are. And it's very, very difficult when you get various different rejections and they could all be slightly different. And that, in the end of the day, could be just a matter of opinion because at the end of the day, an agent's taste is subjective. What one agent likes, another might not like. But if you have two or three agents maybe picking up on the same issues, that might be something to actually pay attention to and to address in another draft. So, yeah, just try to be as patient as you possibly can. I know it's hard. Try not to cling to your emails, try to kind of go out, think of something else or work on something else, try to disengage from the novel as best as you can. And yeah, take on board any feedback that is similar 
to other feedback that you receive. Yeah, that's really a really helpful way to look at. It's really practical and that's encouraging to me personally. I'm currently in the crew trenches, so that helps me personally a lot. So thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) I know emotionally it can be quite difficult, but sometimes you do have to have a practical head on your shoulders. Otherwise, you're just going to be in a nervous wreck for the rest of your days. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. No, I think it will teach me to get a thick skin as well. I feel like it's healthy, you know, it's necessary and it'll be worth it one day. But yeah. (laughs) So when you approach your writing, would you call yourself like a plotter, someone who plans everything to the letter? Or are you more of like a pantser, someone who just (laughs) where the story takes them and just goes with it? (laughs) Do you know what? I thought I was a plotter. With the first novel, I plotted meticulously. And that's probably why I took so long on it, to be perfectly honest, because I was so determined to kind of stick to the things I plotted out. But as I'm sure you'll notice, the things that you plot don't always turn out that way. Your characters take on a life of their own. They take you down different routes. You could get a light bulb moment doing something completely different in a completely different scene or even just in the car. That's where a lot of mine come in. Just doing everyday roles and so you find that plotting doesn't always work and you end up pantsing it anyway. Pandora I began to plot and then I pantsed it and the current novel I'm writing at the moment I'm pantsing the whole way because it's just perhaps the answer is it differs from book to book but at the moment I'm going to say I'm a bit of both and I think it's quite hard to be one or the other because nothing ever goes to plan. Definitely you need to have a bit of wiggle room for when the characters do something you don't expect. Absolutely. Yeah. And what does a typical writing day look like for you? Thing is, I would love to say I'm massively organised. I would love to say I am part of the 5am Writers Club. Some people might have heard that. Basically, it's when people do literally get up at 5am and they write for a few hours and then everybody else gets up and they just carry on with their day. I can't do that. I'm not a morning person. I'm not one of those people either. No, I'm the grumpiest person in the world in the morning. I just can't function. So to be brutally honest, sometimes I'm not sitting at my desk until about, let's say, midday, one o'clock, but I can actually write quite late. So April is my first free month for a bit since Pandora came out and I'm trying to make the most of it. And the other day I was still at my desk at 9pm. I'm not necessarily recommending that, you know, you need to take a break, you need to try and take (laughs) healthy, kind of move yourself from the creative sphere a little bit sometimes but when you're in the zone you can't help it but the point is I am a night owl and I start late and I finish late so yeah I can't say it's a typical writing day either because it will change from time to time most of the time I'll be at my desk but sometimes I might take my laptop and go somewhere else I think if I'm at my desk though I'll always have music on so it tends to be instrumental I can't listen to the radio because I will start listening I can't listen to anything where there's singing because I will sometimes stop and sing. So it has to be instrumental. I love classical music for writing because it's just very, very calming. And I think it centers me. I love Bach, especially, which is 18th century. So anything that kind of puts me in the mood for historical fiction, that's great. But yeah, I love scented candle. I just kind of like to be as relaxed as I possibly can at the desk because at the end of the day, it is a job. And I need to feel as if, I've set myself up to be as productive as possible. So when there is a routine, that is kind of it, but it's never a set routine, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And it would be awesome to know, I mean, can you tell us what you're writing next or how much can you tell us at this stage? Uh, Okay, so I have a two book deal. So when, as I said earlier, Pandora, thank you, Pandora was 
a very kind of fluky novel. It all happens so fast. And when my agent was discussing with my now editor about this two book deal, I was asked, well, what's your second book about? And I thought, I've barely even finished this one. I don't know. I haven't even figured it out yet. But the thing I did tell them was, admit, there is an idea that I've had in my head since 2006. So I'm based in Wales and this country is just so very beautiful and extremely inspiring. And I just had this idea for a dark Gothic novel set in 18th century rural Wales. And that's what I told them. And they're like, oh, okay, intriguing. And I've kind of basically stuck myself into that kind of box now where that's what I have to (laughs) write, even if I had other ideas. (laughs) It's changed a few times along the way because I have to admit, I'm still trying to tell myself the story. I think I have the premise pretty much set, but again, it could change, which is why I'm being quite vague. But yes, what I can tell you is Pandora was gothic, but I think it's a lighter gothic, whereas this is going to be much darker. It's 18th century, rural Wales, and there'll be a troubled doctor and it will involve the occult and Welsh myth and magic. And yeah, it's just all kind of finding its feet at the moment. But hopefully that's the sort of novel we're going to be expecting to see. And as long as I can keep to the schedule, then we'll be expecting it in January 2024. That's fantastic. And I'm excited to read it already. So (laughs) you've got me hooked already just on that. It's just good to hear because at the moment I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing with this. <laughs> I'm already intrigued. You've got me. Don't worry. You've got okay. me. <laughs> so speaking of reading, actually, can you tell us what you're reading at the moment? Do you have any recommendations or things like that? I am not as widely read as I'd like to be because usually when I'm kind of in the throes of writing, I'm either reading research books or historical fiction simply because that is my heartland. And it's not that I'm copying, but I do find... Sometimes it's nice to immerse myself in historical fiction because it does kind of help inspire me as well. So in terms of non-fiction at the moment, I am reading quite a bit about Welsh myth and magic and the paranormal and the occult. But in terms of fiction, I'm just looking at my, my heavy pile of proofs at the moment. I've recently started The Clockwork Girl by Anna Matsula, which is excellent, and also 18th century set in Paris. So got loads of stuff about autumn and yeah you need to check that one out it is out now so definitely keeping an eye on that one that's on my list actually that one so yes yeah you have to read that one it's very very good so far and i have quite that's a few amazing. proofs like I said, i'm looking at my proof pile at the moment and there's quite a few there but i am looking forward to reading the dance tree by kieran millwood hargreave and also there's a lecture here by jennifer saint and the Flames by Sophie Haydock, that's been out recently. So I have quite a few lined up, but at the moment while I'm writing, while I'm deep in the writing stage, I can't distract myself too much with any novels. Oh, definitely. You want to stay in your zone for sure. Yeah. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Susan's novel Pandora is available everywhere books are sold. I've read it myself and it's become a favourite of mine. The cover alone is already stunning, we have to say it, and the writing is just exquisite, so I would definitely recommend it. And if you want to stay in touch, you can visit Susan's website and join her mailing list at susanstokeschapman.com and you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter. I'll add all the links in the description of this episode. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and I'll be back with another episode very soon. Mm -hmm.